Rage be now your song, immortal one, Achilles' rage, doomed and ruinous, that caused the Achaeans loss upon bitter loss, and crowded brave souls into the underworld, leaving so many dead men as carrion for dogs and birds, and the will of Zeus was done. The opening lines of the Iliad by Homer. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this is the seventh episode of The Greek Sun, a podcast series about ancient Greece. The Greek Sun is the second of eight planned series of podcasts about the formation of our Western traditions. I have previously produced the Ancient World series, 25 episodes about history, all the way from the beginning of the universe through the rise of the Persian Empire. If my voice sounds a little bit different this week, it is because I'm probably getting over another round of covid But uh, I didn't want to put off this episode any longer, so we're going to forge on. Now, in the last episode, we studied the background to the Trojan War and a brief summary of its events and its outcome. This episode will take us on a closer look at the Iliad, one of the greatest literary works ever produced in the ancient world. Now, the Iliad was presumably written by Homer, who probably lived in the Boeotian region of Greece sometime around the 8th century BC. His poem, we call it a book simply because of its length, somewhere between 150 and 200,000 English words, depending on your translation, his poem describes certain battles and other events that took place during the ninth year of the Trojan War. It is called the Iliad because the city of Troy, near which the entire city, the entire narrative takes place, was also known as Ilium. So Iliad in ancient Greek essentially means the story about Ilium, about Troy. This Iliad, which many today see as nothing more than a slow but gory recounting of a series of sword and spear battles, became not just a fundamental historical text for the ancient Greeks, but a mystical and religious book as well, and an epic poem whose lines contained religious inspiration and even served as the basis for incantations well into the early Middle Ages, when the peasants of Europe were still mingling elements of the old pagan religions with Christian rites. Now, before I truly begin the episode, though, I wanted to remind you to learn more about all of this by visiting my website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org, where you can find source lists for each episode, transcripts, maps, pictures, links to recommended books, and Western Traditions merchandise as well. While you're at the website, feel free to leave any questions or any other remarks in the comment boxes for each episode. You can also support the podcast through PayPal or Patreon at links found on the site. Also, many of my listeners come directly to me through the website or on Podbean, which hosts the podcast for me. Many others listen via Spotify. If you're listening on Spotify, please make sure to follow the podcast. And if you listen on Podbean, please remember to like the episodes and share them with friends. The Iliad is an epic poem. For a long time, for thousands of years, it was the first known example of an epic poem. The discovery of the Epic of Gilgamesh supplanted the Iliad's place of honor as the oldest surviving epic poem, but the Iliad still remains as one of the most important and influential works of all time, especially in the West. 
According to the late Harold Bloom, renowned literary critic and professor of humanities at Yale University, all of ancient Greek education was founded on the works of Homer, and particularly on the Iliad. I think today for many people, and I include myself in that group, it is initially hard to believe that such value was placed on the Iliad, especially if you have also read or go on to read the Odyssey. The latter book is, without a doubt, a much more inviting and entertaining text for the modern reader, with a narrative that changes scenes and develops a type of plot that has become fundamental to much Western literature, a plot involving a journey not only physical, but spiritual and emotional, a story with character development, with foreshadow and flashbacks, involving a family reunion with a slow build to an intense, violent climax, and an epilogue that resolves a storyline that stretches far back into the past, all the way back to the Iliad, in fact. In comparison, for readers like myself, perhaps, the Iliad itself seems initially to be a much more static tale. Yes, there are many violent and exciting battles, and there is certainly some character development and a moving plot, but in some ways the story seems repetitive. One battle seems like another, and there's a lot of over-the-top descriptions of wounds. There seems to be endless references to the way a spear or a sword tip pierces someone's chest near their nipples. I'm not kidding about the nipples either, and I'm not the first one to mention this. It's actually a topic of discussion among scholars. If you read through the book right now yourself, you will lose count of all the times that someone is stabbed through the nipple or near it in the words of Homer, who seems to have a thing for noting the exact anatomical location of each stab wound. But then, Maybe we should understand that the Iliad was not written for educated, urban, sedentary people like myself and probably most of my listeners. No, it was probably written for people living a much hardier life, and probably the men among the listeners were, as most ancient Greeks were, at least part-time soldiers. Yes, the Greeks had to apply themselves to all the trades to make their society work, and most of them were engaged in farming, as was most of Earth's human population before the 21st century. But Greek men of this time were also always ready to go to war. Remember, their ancestors had come into the Balkan Peninsula as invaders, little different probably than the later barbarians who invaded Europe multiple times during the early Middle Ages. Each man was a farmer or a herdsman or plying some other trade, but he was also always ready to suit up for war when it was necessary. And many of the listeners to the Iliad back then probably had combat experience, so the details of the violence may have been more meaningful for them. Thus, we come to understand a little better the difficulty we may have in appreciating the Iliad compared to our ancient Greek ancestors. They probably would have followed the story differently than we do. They would have anticipated the action differently. Now, all of this is not to say that the Iliad is uninteresting to the modern reader. Plenty of people find it a riveting tale of combat and heroism. But don't be surprised or ashamed if this classic of our Western traditions fails to please at first pass. Now, before I digressed, I wanted to explain that the Iliad is an epic poem. Epic poetry, if you are not familiar with it, is more than the kind of poetry that you more than the kind of poetry that you might be used to. Epic poems are very long, by definition, book length, really, and they also contain extraordinary characters and extraordinary events. Typically, extraordinary characters means deities of some sort or famous heroes, and these poems are also about things like titanic battles or long journeys to mythical places. Examples begin with the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Iliad, but they include Dante's Divine Comedy, of which you may have heard, and Virgil's Aeneid, and the Anglo-Saxon Beowulf, and so on. 
These are, there are examples of modern epics as, as well in our own time, but we'll come to them during the last few series of these podcasts. Now, the Iliad is also distinct from some later epics in that it was originally an oral tale. Some later epics, such as Dante's Divine Comedy, were entirely the written work of one author, even if he was inspired by other traditions. Works like the Iliad, though, were most likely composed, preserved, and told orally around the campfire or in the tavern to attentive listeners. Believe it or not, it is likely that poets and bards of the time carried the entire epic, all 24 books and close to somewhere around 150 or 200,000 words, words of it, they probably carried it around entirely in their heads. Modern people find this hard to imagine, but this was actually the purpose of things like rhythm and rhyme schemes, meter and alliteration. These poetic tools weren't meant for artistic flair. They weren't arbitrary. They were designed to help people remember the lines of long poems. Such feats of memorization involving book-length poems and other writings are rare today, but that's because there's really no need to do so but it is still accomplished in some parts of the world. It is not completely unheard of for certain Christians, evangelicals, for instance, to memorize the Bible. And it is still today a proud cultural accomplishment, if rare, for a Muslim to memorize the entire Quran. It is possible for the human brain to carry around encyclopedic amounts of information. Indeed, later in this same series about the Greeks, we will hear Socrates lament the contemporary proliferation of literacy in his own time, specifically the ability to write. Yes, that's right. Socrates didn't like that people were writing and reading books because he came from a culture in which people still carried the great stories around completely intact in their heads. When you read about Socrates making references to the Iliad, and he often does this, He is referring to the story as he heard it, because he may have never actually read the story. That is kind of hard to to grasp, the idea that he and his friends were so familiar with such a long story only through listening, that they had no written reference points, but recalled everything from a listening experience. When Socrates or some friend calls up a quote from Homer or some other poet, they are not recalling a written passage that they sat and read, as you and I do when we think of a line from a book, but they are remembering listening to someone tell them the story, or sing it to them, perhaps. Anyway, the Iliad begins with the Greek word menin. That's M-I-M-E-N-I-N. It means rage. It is then the story of the rage of Achilles and its impact on the war against Troy. That is the real story here. A lot of people come to the Iliad expecting to learn more about the Trojan War, and they are inevitably disappointed. There is no abduction of Helen here, there is no romance between her and Paris, no story about Achilles' heel, and there is no Trojan horse. The Iliad is essentially about one event, Achilles' struggle with Agamemnon over a woman, an event that neither brings about the war nor ends it. But anyway, let's open now then to the first pages of the tale and learn why Achilles was so enraged and how Agamemnon came to offend him so. The opening lines of the Iliad, with which I introduced the episode, these lines begin with the rage of Achilles and finish, somewhat awkwardly in English, with the phrase, and the will of Zeus was done. How important this is for the understanding of the Greek mind. 
As I related in the episodes about Greek mythology, this idea was a consistent theme, that there is no avoiding the will of God. In a later podcast in the second unit of the Greek Sun series about classical Greece, I will get into the story of Oedipus, which will be another perfect example of this concept. Try as hard as one might, trying to avoid the declarations of a prophecy will only lead you more firmly into its grasp, and there is no avoiding the will of Zeus. Just so, the war in Troy continued on through dark days and horrific struggles until, and only until, Zeus finally tipped the scales and brought about its end. The Iliad describes a period toward the end of the war, but not at its final end, when Zeus was still content to let man and gods thrash it out below. But during this segment of the war, he makes a clear decision to let Achilles and Hector finally meet on the field of battle. And so this story, the Iliad, only appears to be a struggle between Agamemnon, Achilles, Hector, Patroclus, Paris, and so on. Really, they are just pawns on the chessboard for Zeus, who does not even really have an opponent in this game. He moves both the black and the white pieces. In a future series, I will get into the idea of predestination with regard to Christianity, but it is safe to say here that the Greeks already entertained this idea that some divine force determined our actions, and their view of the idea is summed up in that line from the beginning of the Iliad, and the will of Zeus was done. So when we come to the early medieval and modern discussions of predestination in Christian thought, we should understand just how old the idea is and how Greek it is. Anyway, the story begins with a conflict between Achilles and Agamemnon. Now, when you read the Iliad or any of Homer's works, you should be prepared for the many epithets used to describe the characters of the drama. Many figures are referred to with a descriptive phrase attached to their name. Swift runner Achilles, man-killing Hector, gray-eyed goddess Athena, fair-haired Menelaus. Agamemnon is frequently called Lord Marshal or Son of Atreus. The two brothers, Agamemnon and Menelaus, are often referred to as the Atreides. If you hear the term Atreides here and think of the science fiction books and films about the desert world Dune, that is because the main character in that story purports to be descended from Agamemnon of the house of Atreus. Thus, he and his descendants are also called the Atreides. Anyway, I leave these epithets, for the most part, out of this review, but these references are numerous. Homer is famous for these phrasings, and they tell us a great deal about what was important to the ancient Greeks. Speed, strength, lineage, wisdom, and more. The Iliad will end, in its very last words, with its very last line, with a famous epithet about Hector. Now, during their long off-and-on siege of Troy, the Greek forces had assailed many nearby, less well-defended cities in order to provide for their needs. After violent raids on these cities, the Greeks would carry off stores of food, as well as treasures of various sorts, and, of course, slaves, which included women, all these to help them pass the time outside the walls of Troy. In their most recent and successful raid at the beginning of the Iliad, the Greek warriors had carried off several women, among them the daughter of a priest of Apollo by the name of Chryses. This priest, Chryses, had come down to the ships of the victorious Greeks before they departed to resume the siege of Troy. He had begged them to accept gifts in return for his daughter, whom they had taken. This daughter had already been awarded to Agamemnon, the high king over the Greeks. Seeing the richness of the gifts offered by the priest, the common soldiers thought it best to return the girl and make off with even more loot. 
Agamemnon, however, refused, stating that the girl would make a fine bed companion and that she would return home with him someday after the war's conclusion. <clears throat> the Greeks then depart and return to the beach camp outside Troy, but the grieving father and priest left behind prays to his god Apollo and asks him to take revenge and Apollo obliges. He lets loose his metaphysical arrows, and beginning with pack animals, disease begins to ravage the Greek forces. Soon, Greek soldiers are dying left and right. As the corpses begin to pile up, the Greeks seek answers. They have with them a prophet, Calchas. Think of him as the chaplain for the Greek army, but uh, with much more significance. He's not there simply to provide religious services or counseling for the average Greek warrior. The Greeks see a prophet as one who discerns the actual will of the gods in any given situation. So Calchas tells them, he tells the Greeks, that you have offended Apollo in not returning the daughter of his priest Chryses. According to Calchas, they need to return her immediately and placate the gods by making sacrifices and by not asking for any more ransom from the offended priest. The army, in general, is on board with this idea, but not Agamemnon. He reiterates his desire for the girl and sneers at Calchas the prophet, accusing him of only seeing dismal solutions and never forecasting anything good. But Agamemnon does want to save the army. Like any leader, he knows his position depends on success, and he wants to sack Troy. He can't do that without a strong army, so finally he relents. He offers to give back the girl, but only if the army replaces her with another girl brought back as a sex slave from their raids. This, in light of the army's suffering, is too much for Achilles, the leader of the Myrmidons, fierce warriors from Thessaly who came to the war alongside their Greek cousins from Argos. Achilles openly rants about the greed of Agamemnon, about his selfishness. Achilles says that he and the others fight more and fight harder than Agamemnon and should not lose their prized women. Agamemnon retorts then that he will give back the girl, but he will not take just any girl in exchange. He is going to take Achilles' girl. And this is the catalyst for the Iliad, this argument over a captured woman. Because Achilles, angry about his loss, decides to protest this move and sit out any upcoming battles with the Trojans. He also rests his Myrmidon soldiers as well, denying the Greek army a potent weapon in its arsenal of forces. Now, modern readers sometimes comment that Achilles does not come off very admirably in these scenes. His reaction to losing Briseis, the girl that Agamemnon takes in return for surrendering his own sex slave, Achilles' reaction here has been called a tantrum of some sorts. He's throwing a fit, some might say, acting like a spoiled brat, taking all his toys and going home, except he doesn't actually go home. Achilles sits among the ships, pouting, while the Greek army prepares for battle. Achilles is actually briefly tempted to take Agamemnon on in single combat during this argument, and his hand goes to his sword, but quickly he's stopped by Athena. And this sort of intervention is repeated throughout both the Iliad and the Odyssey, moments in which the gods visit Greeks or Trojans and either convince or compel them to do or cease doing something. Now, both Hera and Athena, watching from their divine, divine perspective as this argument takes place, they realize that they will lose at least one, if not two, of their best soldiers should Achilles and Agamemnon engage in combat. And so Athena flashes to the scene, as only the gods can, instantaneously, and is only seen by Achilles. She implores him and promises him great reward if he will keep his sword in his sheath. Achilles obeys her, but not without scolding and insulting Agamemnon one more time. 
This is also repeated in the Iliad, this great respect that various Greeks, particularly Achilles, Diomedes, and Odysseus, have for Athena. While men like Diomedes will go so far as to physically attack some of the gods, they generally obey Athena without hesitation. Now, Nestor, the wise old counselor of the army, also stands to speak and to try to dissuade Agamemnon, but to no avail. The high king and gruff army commander wants to show Achilles who's boss. So, the daughter of the priest and some sacrificial animals are loaded on a ship, captained by Odysseus, and sent back to her father. Meanwhile, the remaining troops set about cleaning up camp, and they carry out a sacrifice of their own. This type of sacrifice is referred to as a hecatomb, H-E-C-A-T-O-M-B, and it means specifically the sacrifice of 100 animals. Now, it is believed that this number was probably not always accurate, and a hecatomb may have simply referred to any sort of mass sacrifice. Regardless, it might help the modern reader to understand that when ancient texts, including the Iliad or the Bible, when they speak of such sacrifices, they are really religious celebrations, not simply the solemn and wasteful destruction of animal lives. The animals, quote-unquote, sacrificed, were actually eaten by the people performing these sacrifices. Yes, some parts, often insignificant portions of the animal, were burnt up in the sacrificial fires, but most of such a sacrifice was eaten by the participants and by the surrounding assembly. So a sacrifice was typically a preface to a meal, specifically a meal mostly comprised of animal flesh. Thus, the Greeks sacrificed to respect the gods and sat down on the beach to enjoy their barbecue. Now, at the same time, Agamemnon sent two of his aides to Achilles' quarters among the 50 ships that brought the Myrmidon allies to the shores of Troy, where the great hero sulked and awaited the royally approved theft of his beautiful Briseis. Achilles submits tearfully to the girl's removal, but immediately goes down to the beach afterward to where the surf meets the land, and Homer puts it thus, Achilles wept and sat by the gray wave, scanning the endless sea. Often he spread his hands in prayer to his mother. A beautiful, if odd, image that Achilles praying on the beach. Though it might seem strange that he would pray to his mother, we have to remember that his mother was a sea nymph, a divine creature, a daughter of the old sea god Nereus. So when he petitions his mother, Achilles is also activating activating a sort of personal divine hotline. He complains of his treatment, and his mother, rising from the deeps of the ocean, where she typically resides, comes quickly to his side to console him. Meanwhile, Odysseus returned the daughter of Chryses to her father, and more cattle were slain, and another sacrifice, or hecatomb, this time for Apollo, was performed. Here is Homer's description of that sacrifice. When prayers were said and grains of barley strewn, they held the buttocks for the knife and flayed them, cutting out joints and wrapping them in fat, two layers folded with raw strips of flesh, for the old man to burn on cloven logs, wetting it all with wine. I render the description here because it is common throughout Homer's work. This is not the only time that he will stop the narrative to describe in gory detail the steps in a sacrifice. Again, perhaps we have to remember that this story was originally an oral tale told around campfires or perhaps even around sacrificial fires. So the listeners, perhaps hungry, would have been particularly moved by these details. They might have enjoyed hearing these passages differently than we do as we hunch over the pages of a book because they were engaged in their own meal preparation, perhaps anticipating the taste of roast meat. 
These well-described scenes of sacrifice found throughout the story were probably also ritual guides, but more on that in the epilogue to this podcast today and also in upcoming episodes. Now Odysseus leaves to return to the beach camp the next morning, after Dawn spread out her fingertips of rose, as Homer likes to put it. And the army is quiet for 12 days, Achilles sitting apart from all of them with his own warriors and guarding his anger and shame. His mother, Thetis, though, the sea nymph, having listened to the prayer of her son, is not happy with his public embarrassment. She appears before Zeus to beg his intervention. She begs for Zeus to have the Trojans renew the battle against the Greeks so that Agamemnon and the other Greeks might see how much they need her son. In short, Zeus agrees, albeit reluctantly. Hera and Athena, divine supporters of the Greek forces, try to fight this decision, but Zeus, using very strong language, reminds them that he is supreme, and no one wants to dare try to stop his will. Hephaestus intervenes, encouraging his mother to acquiesce, and the first book of the Iliad ends as the gods regain their mirth and Zeus goes to bed with Hera, the divine couple once again, however briefly, reconciled in lovemaking. And that is just the first of 24 books in the Iliad. Now, I will not be doing a book-by-book analysis of the whole tale. I don't want to be in audio cliff notes for this great story, but that first book really establishes the setting and the tone of this epic poem, and it it required explanation, I think. I will continue with less play-by-play through the first seven or eight books before going on to a more general analysis. I do definitely strongly encourage all listeners to do more than just take this podcast as gospel with regard to the Iliad. Pick this book up, even if you have already read it before, and take this literary journey yourself, word for word, into the heart of ancient Greek culture. Anyway, moving on into book two, note again how the entire story hinges on the will of Zeus. He will be the one who brings the two forces, Greek and Trojan, into full battle so that all may see how badly needed Achilles is. The need of the suffering Greeks and the death of a close friend in battle will eventually bring Achilles out of his seclusion and onto the battlefield where he will demonstrate his glory in combat with the Trojans. But none of this occurs unless Zeus intervenes, which he does at the start of book two with a dream that he sends to Agamemnon. In this dream, Nestor, the wise old counselor of the army, speaks to Agamemnon and tells him that Zeus has decided the Greeks will be victorious. Now it is time to take the field and assault Troy one last time. Agamemnon's response to the dream is unexpected. He tells his closest generals and captains about its content, but he proposes to test the loyalty and resolve of the men of the army rather than simply command them to take up arms. He then stands before the gathered army and laments their many losses over the years, their nine-year war, and their failure to breach the walls of Troy. He recalls their longing for their wives and children at home. Standing before all, he openly caves in, gives up the struggle, and tells them to prepare their ships for the return home. The men are overwhelmingly in agreement, perhaps to the surprise of Agamemnon, who seems to be engaging in some sort of effort at reverse psychology, though the text is silent on his thoughts here. Without hesitation, the troops begin to raucously break camp, eager to a man for the journey back home. Athena and Hera are quite alarmed by this event. 
Their revenge against Aphrodite and against Paris for an insult is threatened by the sudden collapse of the Greek army. Quickly, Athena darts to the side of one of her favorites, Odysseus, and encourages him to do what he can to turn this surrender around. Obedient, as always, to his patroness, Odysseus begins to move among the men as they prepare for departure, scolding and remanding them. It's only a test. Do not show yourselves to be such cowards. Eventually, the scattered warriors reassemble before Agamemnon. Odysseus reaffirms the army's desire to follow their high king, and he recalls an event which I have already covered in the previous episode about the Trojan War, regarding the sacrifice at Aulis and the snake which ate all the bird's eggs and the mother bird prophesying the ten-year war. We are almost finished, Odysseus seems to be telling them. Just hold on. Nestor also speaks, scolding the men and asking Agamemnon once again to lead them in war. Agamemnon accepts this reapproval, almost like a renomination to lead the soldiers, and tells them that they will sacrifice again, eat, and then prepare for battle. Now, shortly after this, Homer gives us the breakdown of the Greek forces, which I described in the previous episode. He details the number of ships from each of the allies and their various leaders. Now, though many great figures are named in this list, such as Odysseus, Achilles, Diomedes, and so on, Many of the names are meaningless to us now, but they were probably all heralded names of great men remembered by the Greeks when they heard the story. Now, the men eventually come together in formation for war, and as Homer says, the marching host devoured the plain as though it were a prairie fire. The ground beneath it rumbled. The regular soldiers are on foot, but their leaders ride in battle chariots. However, numerous as they are, they are not accompanied by Achilles, nor by his Myrmidon warriors. They stay back at the ships and protest at the treatment of their leader. Meanwhile, Zeus sends Iris to alert the Trojans to prepare for the assault. Iris was a minor goddess associated with the rain and the rainbow, but she is often depicted as Zeus's personal messenger in Homer's poetry. Now, the last portion of the second book then provides a list of Trojan and allied forces, along with their leaders, as they prepare for the Greek onslaught. Among the names found there is that of Aeneas, the leader of the Dardan people. When we come to the Roman series in a couple years, he will be remembered as the hero of the Aeneid and the true founder of the Roman heritage. He is one of the mightier warriors among the Trojan forces. This list of Trojan military formations is much shorter and less detailed than the Greek list. Now, Priam is the nominal leader of them all, as he is king of Troy. The text refers to his position as Anax, or High King, the word also used often to describe Agamemnon. Later in this story, we learn that Priam has 50 sons, 19 from just one wife. But the combat leader of the Trojan forces is Priam's favored son, Hector. We meet him in the text here now briefly, but he is the other star of this tale. The purpose of the Iliad is to describe how Hector and Achilles, the two greatest warriors alive, finally come to meet on the field of battle before the walls of Troy. The Trojans open the gates and go out to meet the Greeks in battle, spurred on perhaps simply by Zeus or simply by honor, to not be content with simply waiting out a siege, but preferring to meet the Greek attack and defeat them directly. As Book 3 opens, Homer describes the advance of the Greek army and all its battalions with one of his famous extended metaphors. Here it is in translation by Robert Fitzgerald. Imagine mist, the south wind rolls on hills, a blowing bane for shepherds, but for thieves better than nightfall. Mist where a man can see a stone's throw and no more, so dense the dust that clouded up from the advancing hosts as they devoured the plain. 
Homer is famous for such descriptions. Extended metaphors, similes, and other flowery verbal imagery will continue to be characteristic of most epic poetry. When we come to Dante during the medieval series in perhaps four or five years, we will see even longer digressions into metaphors used to describe people, events, and more. Now, before the two massive armies can clash, however, Paris, brother of Hector, and the one who stole Helen away and brought her to Troy, he, perhaps not unsurprisingly, takes the opportunity to be a showboat in front of the troops. Homer describes him thus as he rides proudly to the front of the Trojan lines, wearing a cowl of leopard skin, a bow hung on his back, a long sword at his hip, with two spears capped in pointed bronze. Again, note that he carries bronze weapons, not iron, dating this story back to the late 2nd millennium BC at the latest. But anyway, Paris is referred to here, as he is frequently in the Iliad, by his other name, Alexander. He rides to the front of the Trojan lines and calls for the best man among the Greeks to come forward and face him in single combat. Menelaus, overjoyed by the opportunity to kill his wife's lover, leaps out, ready to slay the man who cuckolded him. Paris Alexander, perhaps a better lover than a fighter, promptly retreats back into the Trojan lines when he sees the intimidating Menelaus approaching. Hector, commander of the troops, belittles his little brother for this and reminds him of how his poor choices, especially in women, have brought ruin on the great city of Troy. Paris's reply is wonderfully characteristic of the gorgeous playboy. He points out that Hector possesses a spirit like a sharp axe, but himself? My own gifts are from pale gold Aphrodite. Do not taunt me for them. Glorious things that the gods bestow are not to be despised. Essentially, Paris says, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Make no mistake, though, Paris, like all men of this time and place, was no tender, fragile creature. We should not compare him to some modern, flamboyant heartbreaker who has never done anything difficult in life. See how Paris here is armed with sword and spear. See him dressed in battle gear. While he may have been more given to romantic passion than the average man of his time and place, Paris could probably kill any one of us with his bare hands without breaking a sweat. Like all men of his culture, he was ever ready for combat. Perspective is important here. The men that we read about in the Iliad, even Paris Alexander, their kind is found in few, if any, places today. Casual killers all, they would have been more dangerous than wild animals were they to suddenly appear among us today. Now, Paris renews the offer to fight Menelaus single-handed. The Greeks accept, and Agamemnon declares that there should be a sacrifice and vows made, and that King Priam himself should come to swear to the terms of the combat, which are that the winner of the combat should receive Helen and all the Spartan treasure which was brought away with her, and then that the army should stand down and go home. Meanwhile, Iris, Zeus's faithful messenger, flits down to the city of Troy and speaks briefly with Helen, letting her know of the pact made on the battle plain. The great beauty then meets with King Priam, and the two spend some time viewing the massed Greek army from the top of the wall around the city, before Priam descends, as agreed, and performs the sacrifice among the gathered foes. But as he cannot bear to watch his son take on Menelaus, Priam then departs the battlefield. The two men, Menelaus and Paris, begin single combat, each throwing a spear before engaging in swordplay. Menelaus's sword shatters on the helm of the Trojan prince, but he manages to drag Alexander by the helmet strap back toward the Greek lines. 
Before he can finish slaying his enemy, though, in a classic Greek plot twist, Aphrodite herself spirits Paris, her mortal favorite, away in a mysterious mist and lays the Trojan adulterer in his own bed. She then goes to find Helen and convinces the great beauty, though she is reluctant at first, to go and make love with Paris. Meanwhile, out on the battlefield, Paris Alexander being unfound and unable to meet his end of the pact, ambitious Agamemnon stands tall among the combatants and declares victory and demands that the Trojans surrender Helen and all the stolen treasure. Unfortunately, for all the dead to come, the war does not end at this juncture. The gods themselves atop Mount Olympus argue again about the eventual outcome, and finally Zeus, tired of Hera and Athena's harassment, gives way. The Trojans will break the pact, he decides, and the city will fall, though first Zeus assures Hera that someday he will destroy a city beloved by her and expect no resistance. So insignificant is the negotiation of human suffering among the gods. Athena then darts away to the field of combat again and stirs up a soldier to fire an arrow at Menelaus, who is gravely injured by the missile, but hauled away to see the camp healer, who is a son of the famous physician Asclepius. Agamemnon, enraged at this betrayal of the truce and disturbed to see his brother so badly injured, marshals the troops together and full-fledged combat between the armies ensues. And so the war continues through 20 more books drenched in blood and gore. In the coming pages, we meet hero after hero, such as Diomedes, another favorite of Athena, and the two Ajaxes, and Dantilochus, who is the first Greek to kill a Trojan enemy. Odysseus will appear here and there in these pages as well, but probably not as much as one might expect, given how well he is remembered even among those who have not read the epics, much more space is given to figures like Diomedes and eventually Achilles and Patroclus. Now, <clears throat> most of Book 5 is focused on this Diomedes, that's D-I-O-M-E-D-E-S, who essentially goes on a murder spree here. He takes down his first Trojan with a spear, spear thrust midway between the nipples, as we are so pleased to hear. Later, he slays the Trojan soldier Pandarus in the following manner. Cleaving Pandarus's nose beside the eye and shattering his white teeth, his tongue the brazen spearhead severed, tip from root, then came plowing on, came out beneath his chin. The Iliad is chock full of these lovely descriptions of slaughter. But Diomedes' battle fury is truly remarkable. He bulls through the Trojan lines, inspired by Athena's voice in his ear, cutting man after Trojan man to pieces. The gods allied with Troy are so astounded by the progress of Diomedes that they try to stop him in person. Aphrodite, goddess of love, descends and appears on the battlefield to deter him. Though she is divine, Aphrodite cannot stand in Diomedes' way. He injures her hand with his spear point, and she flees the battle in shock. After the war, according to one tradition, Aphrodite took revenge upon Diomedes by causing his wife to leave him for another man, and this cost Diomedes his kingdom as well. Later in this same battle with Athena at his side, though, Diomedes even injures the war god Ares himself, who also flies howling from the warfare. The battle eventually reaches the gates of Troy. 
Now, during this engagement, Hector briefly departs the field of war and returns to enter the city, where he dons a special robe to make a sacrifice to Athena and to beg for her intercession. In the ancient world, especially in the West, the leaders of men, kings and princes, were also deemed to hold religious capacities. So it is the warrior Hector who presides over this ritual, rather than a priest ordained to the service. We will see this repeated later in ancient Rome, where high-level politicians and generals were usually appointed to the office of high priest, and you see much less influence from an organized and separate priesthood. Now, as the text notes, though, Athena does not hear this prayer of Hector's. She turns away her head, as Homer puts it. Prior to the sacrifice, though, there is a short but poignant passage which I think every reader of the Iliad and every devotee of Western traditions should take note of. On his way to perform his religious duties, Hector steps in to see his family, his wife Andromache, and their child. The passage is brief but interesting in that it depicts Hector, who is undeniably the greatest enemy of the Greeks, it depicts Hector very sympathetically, speaking of how he caresses his wife, fondles his small child playfully, and holds the baby high in the air and prays to the gods for his well-being. Any Greek listening to this tale already knew the outcome, of course, that Hector was doomed, that his family was doomed, that Hector would be slain soon, his body tortured and denigrated, and that after the city finally fell, his baby son would be thrown from the walls, hurled to his death, that his wife Andromache would be taken captive by Neoptolemus, the son of Achilles, who will join the war only after the death of his father. I myself find this passage interesting because I think that one first comes to the Iliad expecting it to be a jingoistic text, something undeviatingly pro-Greek and anti-Trojan, a sort of ancient, flag-waving, uber-patriotic rant. But it is not, nor is really any of the great Greek works of literature. The Iliad on the surface is a war story, and it is also a religious document, a mystical text, but it is also a study in human suffering, and more than anything, an analysis of madness. This theme, madness, insanity, particularly that caused by grief or by guilt, is found throughout Greek art and literature. The madness of Achilles, of of Heracles, rather, as he murders his own family, and the guilt that drives him through the remainder of his life. The madness of Oedipus when he tears out his own eyes and after he realizes that he has murdered his own father and married his mother. And Achilles, well, we will come to the madness of Achilles soon enough. Now, this particular military engagement, one of many in the Iliad, finally ends after Paris rejoins his brother Hector on the battlefield, and the offer of single combat with the Greeks is renewed. But this time, Hector will be the Trojan champion. Ajax of Telamon is chosen by lot to be the Greek champion, among many who competed for the opportunity, including Agamemnon, Odysseus, and Diomedes. So Ajax was chosen to represent the Greeks and to face Hector in single combat. The armed duel between them disintegrates into a brawl, and at one point Ajax knocks Hector to the ground with a huge thrown rock. But as night is about to fall, and the two are equally recognized as great warriors, the combatants are separated by their friends. Eventually, another truce is called, and the two armies meet peacefully on the battlefield the following day, collecting their dead and weeping as they go. In a passage perhaps odd to our modern sensibilities, Poseidon, 
the, the sea god at this point in the tale, is angered when the Greeks take time to build a rampart, a high wall made of earth and timbers around their camp to protect themselves from a possible Trojan onslaught. And they even surround the fortification with a moat. He complains to Zeus that the Greeks disrespected the gods by not praying and sacrificing before constructing these defenses. So important were sacrifices in this day. The ire of Poseidon will come into play later, after the Iliad, when the Greeks try to go home. It turns out, though, that the building of the rampart was timely because the Trojans, driven by Hector or other Trojan or allied for heroes such as Sarpedon, one of Zeus's mortal sons, the Trojan forces end up besieging the Greeks within those earthen walls as soon as battle resumes. That following night, after their retreat behind the rampart, the Greek leaders hold a council to consider their new situation. Nestor, the wise if garrulous counselor of the generals, immediately brings up the elephant in the room. The Greeks are only in such dire straits because they are deprived of the fighting arms of Achilles and his men, who calmly sat out the near destruction of the Greek forces. Agamemnon, in a show of humility, loses all of his former pride and openly admits his error before the gathered body of leaders. He offers sums of treasure and golden gifts, seven cities to rule over, and even a daughter of his own as wife, if Achilles will forgive and rejoin the Greeks in war. Trustworthy Odysseus, as well as Ajax of Telamon and others, are burdened with the mission to make this offer to Achilles and to convince the mighty warrior to fight at their side once again. Odysseus finds Achilles among the Myrmidon huts and ships. The hero, not at all drained by his days of leisure, sits and joyfully plays a harp and sings songs about old heroes. Achilles refutes their attempt to bring him back into the Greek fold, though. Further, he openly begins to doubt the entire endeavor. Referring, as the text often does, to the Greeks as Argives, Achilles says the following about Agamemnon. Why must Argives fight the Trojans? Why did he raise an army and lead it here? For Helen, was it not? Are the Atreides of all mortal men the only ones who love their wives? I think not. Every sane, decent fellow loves his own woman and cares for her, as in my heart I loved mine, though I won her by the spear. Achilles reveals something of note in this long reply to Odysseus and his friends. His mother told him of two possible destinies for himself, he says, and Achilles may choose only one. He may stay and fight at Troy and die there while gaining unending glory, or he may sail home and live a long life in his own land, but without any lasting glory. Though Achilles' speech is long, his answer ultimately is short. No, no, he will not rejoin the Greeks in their warfare. He will wait, he says, for Hector himself to reach his very own ship during the next assault, and then all will see what the Greeks have been lacking all this time. Odysseus and company return to Agamemnon with the sad news, and the Greeks steal themselves for the coming day, while the Trojan campfires burn all around their defensive wall. And we are not yet halfway through the tale. However, telescoping this review a bit, let me say that the battles, without the participation of Achilles, go on and on, and our favorite characters, such as Odysseus and Diomedes, have interesting adventures and encounters. <clears throat> the battle, though, eventually reaches the walls of the Greek camp again, and the rampart is breached, and the Greek soldiers, in terror, take flight to their ships, certain doom now upon them as Hector and the Trojan forces rove freely over the beachhead, slaying Greeks left and right. Agamemnon, Diomedes, Odysseus, the Ajaxes, even wounded Menelaus are all brought into close quarters combat. 
This battle is described in surprising tactical detail. At one point in Book 13, Homer relates how Hector fought on, ignorant that the Trojan left flank was being destroyed. Interestingly, of the Greek soldiers performing this destruction of the Trojan left flank, the first ones mentioned by Homer are the Boeotians, just as they were the first ones mentioned in the catalog of ships in Book 2. Eventually, however, the tide is turned, and led by Poseidon, the storm god, who appears in order to, con- to encourage the Greeks, and who has apparently forgotten about being offended by the building of the rampart, the allies under Agamemnon drive the Trojans back to their chariots, which they left by the moat outside the Greek camp. Now, something I have not mentioned in great detail so far in this episode are the parts that the gods have played. By now, in my review, I have essentially reached the 14th book of the Iliad, but I have not described in much detail the activities of the gods. Not only has Athena or Iris raced down to the battlefield multiple times to pass on a message or encourage, discourage, or confuse a warrior, but numerous other gods have done so as well, including Ares, whose son Ascalaphus dies in battle, slain by the Trojans. In fact, Ares is only stopped from returning to the field of battle again to slay the Trojans in revenge by Zeus's almighty command. Midway through the story, the gods have met again and discussed the war. And this has actually happened more than once so far in the tale, these brief interludes, sometimes not so brief, in which the gods comment on the progress of the war below. But at this particular juncture, Zeus lays down the law and describes how things will go. Achilles will remain stubborn until Hector reaches the ships. Then he will release Patroclus, his best friend, to go and fight Hector. But Patroclus will be slain, and then Achilles' fury will finally be unleashed, and the scales will tip permanently in the favor of the Greeks. Until then, however, there will be no divine intervention to assist the Greeks. All will go as Zeus has said, or there will be terrible consequences for any god who interferes. Zeus does not even hesitate to threaten Poseidon, the earthshaker, to remain quiescent. Revealing all of this in Book 15 might seem like a good way to kill the suspense in the story, It would be essentially unacceptable in a modern tale. This would not sell books, this giving away of the ending. But remember how the Greeks viewed the world and its events. It's all a piece of work performed by Zeus. He sculpts the world as he sees fit, and no one may contradict his wishes. Curiously, though, the Greeks still saw Zeus as possessing some limitations and weaknesses. For instance, just prior to this passage, Hera borrowed the enchantments and assistance of both Aphrodite and Sleep, Sleep itself, remember, was a god for the Greeks. And Hera seduced Zeus to bed and poised coital slumber so that Poseidon could go down to the battle and save the Greeks from destruction. It was Poseidon's intervention which pushed the Trojans back to the moat the first time, kept the Greeks safe within their rampart. Nevertheless, now the tide turns again and the battle comes back to the Greek ships. In an unforgettable scene amid the chaos of battle, Hector declares Armageddon for the Greeks. Earth ran dark with blood. Once Hector had the stern post of the ship in his hands, he kept a death grip on it and commanded the Trojans, Fire now, bring it up, and all together raise a battle shout. Zeus gave us this day as a recompense for everything. Now we may burn the ships. Nevertheless, Achilles will still not come into action and reveal his glory on the battlefield. He promised not to return to war until the Trojans had come to his very own ship. As it stands in Book 16, the Trojans are in the camp, but they have not assaulted Achilles' own ships yet. 
<clears throat> this stubbornness is called into question by Patroclus, Achilles' closest companion and his military adjutant as well as his second-in-command. The way that Homer handles this scene is remarkable for many reasons. For one, Homer addresses Patroclus here in the second person. Homer does this also for Menelaus at times in the Iliad. Here's an example of what I'm talking about from Book 16. Achilles is in mid-rant about Patroclus' apparent grief over the tide of battle turning against the Greeks. Is this weeping over the Argives, seeing how they perish at the long ships by their own bloody fault? Speak out now, don't conceal it, let us share it. And groaning, Patroclus, you replied, Achilles, prince and greatest of Achaeans, be forbearing, they are badly hurt. Homer only speaks like this directly to Patroclus a limited number of times. At other junctures, he uses the third person and does so exclusively after Patroclus dies. It is still not known why Homer speaks only to Patroclus and Menelaus in this fashion, nor is it known why he does it only occasionally. Anyway, Patroclus pleads with Achilles, and when the the latter observes directly just how badly it goes for the Greeks, when he sees the Greek ships catch fire, he compromises. He commands the eager Patroclus to put on Achilles' own armor and to go out to aid the Greeks in war. With one limitation, though, Achilles says Patroclus is not to take the battle all the way to Troy because the gods might intervene, especially Apollo. Patroclus is only allowed to relieve the Greek camp from immediate destruction. Patroclus, once armored in the battle gear of Achilles, cuts down his Trojan enemies with godlike wrath. The astounded Trojans and their allies retreat. Patroclus, in his battle fury, heeds not the words of Achilles and brings the battle all the way to Troy. As you might have already guessed, his doom awaited him there. Hector, inspired by Apollo, brings him down and listens to the dying Patroclus with his last breath prophesy Hector's own death at the hands of Achilles. There is a long battle over the body of Patroclus. Eventually, Hector strips the battle gear of Achilles from the hero's corpse, but he cannot secure the body, which Greeks such as Menelaus and Ajax valiantly defend. Initially, Hector means to send the captured arms and armor up to Troy, but he changes his mind. Hector suits up in Achilles' own armor, straps the mighty warrior's sword to his own waist, and joins the battle again. Now the tide turns the other way one more time, and the Trojans drive the battle back to the beach and the Greek rampart. One of the sons of Nestor, the oldest Greek general, brings Achilles the news. Hector has vanquished Patroclus. Here's desolation, son of Peleus, the worst for you. Would God it had not happened. Lord Patroclus fell, and they are fighting over his body, stripped of armor. Hector has your gear. Achilles reacts to the dread tidings tidings with a classic demonstration of grief in the ancient world. As Homer tells it, a black storm cloud of pain shrouded Achilles. On his bowed head, he scattered dust and ash in handfuls and befouled his beautiful face. There in the dust, he stretched his giant length and tore his hair with both hands. The terrible cries of Achilles reach his mother again, who is currently in the depths of the ocean near her father and surrounded by other nymphs. All cry in unison with Thetis, Achilles' mother, who then departs her underwater cave and goes to see her son, arriving as deities do almost instantly. Achilles explains to her why he's so grieving and swears vengeance on Hector. His mother darkly reminds him, 
You'll be swift to meet your own end, child. Your doom comes close on the heels of Hector's own. <clears throat> because the fall of Hector will lead quickly to the fall of Troy itself, and, as the prophecy related by his mother foretold, Achilles will not outlive Troy. But Achilles will not relent. He will go forth and have revenge for Patroclus. He is unafraid of death. His mother accepts his determination, but only asks that he wait until the morning. Since he is without his best weapons and armor, Hector wears them now, she will bring him gifts from the god of the forge, Hephaestus himself. Meanwhile, as Achilles awaits next day delivery from heaven, the Greeks are outside being turned into ground beef by Hector and his friends. So Hera sends Iris, trusty divine messenger, to Achilles' side. She convinces him, since he lacks his battle gear, to just lend his appearance to the Greek effort before final disaster ensues. Achilles emerges from seclusion and then stalks out to the moat where the battle is hot. Athena made his body appear to blaze with glory, and he gave three legendary shouts, three bellowings supported by the simultaneous shrieking of Athena. The force of these cries literally throws the Trojan lines back and even injures 12 of their own men. It was enough to allow the successful retrieval of Patroclus's body back behind the Greek lines and to his own bed among the Myrmidon troops. <clears throat> and Achilles immediately returned to grieving weeping hot tears over his fallen comrade. The sun sets and battle breaks off. The Trojans sit outside the Greek rampart and discuss the next day's strategy. Polydamus, longtime comrade of Hector, recommends returning to the security of Troy, now that Achilles appears to have joined the fray. He seems to reinforce the idea that the armies of this time and place were not suited to sieges. Speaking of Achilles, he says, Rage as he, as he will, he cannot force an entrance, cannot take all Troy by storm. Hector, perhaps more normally given to wise caution, at this moment spurns the advice. Go on the defensive now? Also, referring to Achilles, he says, Shall I retreat from him, from him from clash of combat? No, I will not. Here I'll stand, though he should win. I might just win myself. The battle god is impartial, dealing death to the death-dealing man. <clears throat> Simultaneously, inside the safety of the Greek rampart and grieving for Patroclus, Achilles swears a ghastly vow. I will not give you burial, Patroclus, until I carry back the gear and head of him who killed you, noble friend. Before your funeral pyre, I'll cut the throats of twelve resplendent children of the Trojans. That is my murdering fury. To be clear, Achilles does not mean actual children here. That's just another way to refer to Trojan men. Still, harsh enough, it will not be good enough to kill Hector. Twelve more living Trojans must follow Hector to hell during the planned funeral rites of Patroclus. Meanwhile, Hephaestus gets to work forging new armor for Achilles. What follows in the text are pages and pages of description of just the shield that the Vulcan god crafts for Achilles. The other gear is only briefly mentioned afterward, but the description of Achilles' new shield is really astounding. Little mention now is, is made of the actual materials used, bronze and tin and silver and gold. Homer instead focuses on describing what Hephaestus described on the surface of the shield. And this description takes pages because Hephaestus engraves an entire world on the surface of this shield. As Homer says, he pictured on it earth, heaven, and sea, 
unwearied sun, moon waxing, all the stars that heaven bears for a garland, Pleiades, Hyades, Orion in his might, the great bear too. <clears throat> in addition, Hephaestus carved, Hephaestus carved two entire cities into the shield surface. One city is full of weddings and individuals celebrating these marriages can be seen and there's a nearby busy marketplace and a crime is committed there and the town elders sit in judgment over the man who committed the crime. And the other city pictured is at war and individual soldiers are depicted. There's an ambush and javelins are thrown and wounds are described. And there are farm fields where harvesters wield scythes while others slaughter and dress an ox and a vineyard and two lions assault a herd of cattle. And even then I have not given you all that is found detailed in the finest metalwork of Hephaestus. Reading the text here is almost a, a journey into the surreal as not only are people and things described, but actual events and sequence. And it's easy to become confused into thinking that one is reading a narrative and not merely a description of a finely crafted shield. Nevertheless, when it is all prepared, along with helmet and shin greaves and more, Thetis flies swift as a hawk with the armor down to where Achilles waits besides the body of Patroclus, brooding and vengeful. We gain increasing clarity now as the end approaches. Beginning with Book 20, where we are now, we are like those on a long journey. At the beginning, our destination was only a word, an idea. Now we are almost there and we can see it. The details are resolving like the cities and people featured on the front of Achilles' shield. Achilles' arms for battle. His rage, once directed futilely at Agamemnon, is now rechanneled toward Hector and multiplied a thousandfold. It is about to be unleashed. Imagine the horses of a chariot team snorting with anticipation and stamping their hooves, ready to burst forth. Just so, Achilles and the Achaean forces, their morale restored at the sight of their fresh champion, garbed in divine implements of war, himself brimming with bloodlust. Agamemnon and Achilles publicly settle their dispute, and Briseis is returned to Achilles' side, untouched by the Greek high king. The latter suggests a feast before renewing the battle, but Achilles will not eat until he is victorious. <clears throat> Before Achilles puts on the holy armor, his mother vows to keep Patroclus' body immaculate, ready for Achilles to return and honor it properly in funeral rites. So finally, Achilles mounts his chariot, and one of his horses, empowered to do so by the goddess Hera, speaks to Achilles and reminds him of his fate. We might run swiftly as the west wind blows, but still it is your destiny to be brought low. And Achilles responds to the horse, what is in store for me I know well, to die here, far away from my dear father and mother. All that matters is that I shall not call a halt today until I have made the Trojans sick of war. The gods, too, prepare for war. All gather in the halls of Zeus, and the king of the gods declares Troy to be a divine free fire zone. While he has determined the outcome of this war, he is not ready for it to end now, not ready for Troy to fall, and that would certainly be the result, even if Achilles took on the Trojans all by himself. Now that he's mad with rage for his friend's death, I fear he'll break the wall down, Zeus says, and sack the town before the time has come. So Zeus bids the gods to take sides and guide the battle. Athena, Hera, Poseidon, Hermes, and Hephaestus declare for the Greeks. 
Ares, Aphrodite, Apollo, Artemis, and others for the Trojans. And the battle breaks open. The ground trembles. Gods and men grapple in combat. Aeneas is the first to meet the charge of Achilles. The two men battle manfully, and the text pauses reality just as Aeneas is about to bring down a huge stone on Achilles, while Achilles himself is slashing at Aeneas with his sword. Here, Poseidon reminds the gods that Aeneas is destined to continue the line of Dardanos, his ancestor, and to lead the Trojan people after the war. Centuries after this, the poet Virgil in Rome will make use of this line from the Iliad to craft his Aeneid, the epic poem about Aeneas founding ancient Rome. But anyway, in that instant, Poseidon grabs Aeneas and, somewhat like Aphrodite did for for Paris earlier, whisks him away to the flank of the general combat where he is safe, since, as the storm god relates, only Achilles can kill Aeneas. Now, Achilles, denied victory over Aeneas, does not stop. He charges on through the Trojan lines, unstoppable in his battle fury, Multiple times, Trojan warriors are foiled by Achilles' shield, which no spear may penetrate, no sword may cleave. He slays hero after hero, even killing those who fall at his knees and beg for mercy. The battle eventually ranges near the river Scamander, and this river is offended by Achilles' bloodthirstiness, because he's polluting the river waters with corpses and with blood. But Achilles spurns Scamander's request to move the battle elsewhere, elsewhere. so the river attacks Achilles, trying to push him downstream with supernatural floodwaters. When this attempt is diverted by defending gods, Scamander convinces a brother's stream to also attack, and soon the whole battlefield is underwater, corpses and battle gear floating and tumbling in the turbulent surges. Now something even more incredible occurs. To neutralize Scavender's effect on the battlefield, Hephaestus, as Homer says, brought heaven's flame to bear, consuming many dead men on the plain and drying up the waters. Afterward, the battlefield gods argue before retiring from the scene in an uneasy truce. Meanwhile, Achilles proceeded steadily on to Troy, leaving behind him a trail of brave corpses. The Trojans then make a difficult decision to flee headlong to the safety of the city. But the gates must remain open for this, and this is the one situation in which an enemy army, unequipped with siege machinery like catapults and towers, the one situation in which they might seize the city, if they can reach the gates before they close. To prevent such a debacle, brave men must turn and fight as a hopeless rearguard in order to ensure the safety of the others. And the last man to do so, to hold off Achilles so that the gate might close and secure the vulnerable populace of the city from rape and plunder. That last man is Hector. This Trojan hero's mother and father see his brave stand from atop the encircling wall. Old Priam pulls his hair out in distress. Hector's mother wails. But the will of Zeus was done. Hector's will fails him at the last second as Achilles approaches like a thundercloud in all its destructive fury. He runs and Achilles gives chase, and he forbids any of the Greeks to help him. Hector could not outrun Achilles, who is frequently in the course of the Iliad referred to as the Great Runner. But it is Athena, whose trickery is always indulged by Zeus, who really brings the matter to a close. Cruelly, perhaps, she appears by Hector's side in the shape and form of his valiant brother, brother Deiphobos, and they, he suggests that they stop and meet Achilles together and bring the Greek warrior's fighting days to an end. 
But when they stop, Hector and Achilles exchange spear throws without effect, and when Hector turns to his brother for another spear, there is no one there, and Hector recognizes the will of the gods and his certain death. There is little delay now. Achilles aims for one of the few spots on Hector's body not covered by his own armor. As Homer says, Achilles drove his point straight through the tender neck, but did not cut the windpipe, leaving Hector able to speak. He fell aside into the dust. Hector, with his dying breath, begs for his body to be returned to his mother. Achilles only responds with the the passage that I quoted at the beginning of the last episode. Would God my passion drove me to slaughter you and eat you raw. You've caused such agony to me. No man exists who could defend you from the carrion pack. Not if they gave to me ten times your ransom. Not if Priam, son of Dardanos, told them to buy you for your weight in gold. You'll have no bed of death, nor will you be laid out and mourned by her who gave you birth. Dogs and birds will have you. Every scrap. No mercy for Hector's corpse. No funeral rites. Dogs and carrion birds will consume his tortured flesh. Hector dies then, but rather than carry on operations against Troy at this moment, Achilles gets on with his revenge with no delay. Remember, dear listener, brave Hector? Remember the man who caressed his wife and laughed, playing with his child? Well, Achilles pierced the flesh between the tendons and heels of his defenseless body and ran rawhide cords through them and then lashed them through his, to his chariot. As Hector's parents washed from the city's walls, Achilles begins to drag the corpse feet first around Troy, the home that Hector had died defending, containing the people he had sought to spare. His mother now wailed and tore out her braided hair. Old Priam, his father, mad with grief, tried to go out. Prevented, he rolled in the dirt and the grime and begged his townspeople, let me go out of the city to the Achaean ships. I'll make my plea to that demonic heart. And later he groans about Hector, his own son. Why could he not have died where I might hold him? And his mother laments him with a memorable phrasing. I am lost now. Can I bear my life after the death of suffering your death? Hector's wife, Andromache, is the last to learn of Hector's death. She comes to the walls only to see her beloved husband's body being dragged away to the Greek ships. In a long burst of grief, she verbalizes certain doom for herself and her son. She speaks of what misery may await him, even if he escapes the war alive, living the life of an orphan. But Greek listeners would have already known that even that sad hope was never to be. Hector's son, Astyanax, still a baby, will be tossed from the walls when Troy is eventually sacked. According to one popular tradition, it will be the son of Achilles, Neoptolemus, who throws the child to his death. According to another, it was Odysseus. Achilles returns to the Greek beach camp and leaves Hector's body in the dirt for later amusement. Meanwhile, he refuses to wash the gore from his body until he has properly sacrificed and feasted for Patroclus' funeral and burned the body so that, as Achilles says, the dead man may reach the gloomy west. Achilles, exhausted, falls to sleep shortly after his soldier's feast. The shade of Patroclus, what we might call his ghost, then visits his still-living friend in a dream, 
remanding him for not already burning his body, because he is not able to pass over the river where the dead gather on its shore and waits forlorn outside the gates of death. One more thing Patroclus's shade asks, for his bones to be kept in the same urn that will soon hold those of Achilles. The funeral scene the next day is memorable. Agamemnon, eager to honor the man who saved the war effort against Troy, commands the soldiers to cut down oak trees on the hillsides to fuel the funeral pyre. As Homer tells it, on the shore they stacked their burdens in a woodpile where Achilles planned Patroclus's barrow and his own. So Achilles prepares to burn Patroclus and goes ahead and readies his own funeral pyre as well, knowing that his death cannot be far off now. As his mother explained, should he choose to stay at Troy and seek glory, he will not escape death there. The Myrmidons carry the body of Patroclus, his corpse covered in locks of their hair that they have all cut off to honor him, to the broad, towering pile of wood where he will be burned. On foot, they are flanked by chariot riders as an honor guard. When they arrive, Achilles cuts off some of his own red gold hair, as Homer says, and places the lock in his dead friend's hand, weeping along with all of his companions. They added wood to the pyre until the mound was an immense 100 feet on each side. After placing Patroclus atop it, Achilles and friends sacrifice cattle, and after dressing the slaughtered animal bodies, they sheathe the body of Patroclus in animal fat, and they lay the carcasses of the sacrificed animals all around him. Altogether upon the pyre, Achilles burns cattle and horses and dogs and jars of honey and the bodies of twelve sons of Troy after he slits their throats one by one. As the night passes, Patroclus' body will not burn. So Iris, the messenger goddess, brings in the winds from the north and the west to breathe fury into the flames, and Achilles pours out cup after cup of wine on the ground in libation to the gods, the winds, and his friend Patroclus. The next morning, perhaps unsurprisingly to our taste, the mourners hold funeral games, basically competitions of strength and speed, the kind of athletic games that made up the earliest Olympics, running, lifting, boxing, archery, and so on. Odysseus performs well here, as do the other surviving heroes. Achilles awards the winners of each competition treasures from his own supply. And among the prizes, there are cattle and horses, bars of gold, fine bowls and cups, girls from among the captives, cauldrons and fine tripods that are used for cooking over fires. The final book, number 24, opens after all these games are completed. Achilles can't sleep after that day for thinking about the bravery of Patroclus and how he longs for his lost friend. So, for 11 days straight, Achilles attaches the body of Hector Remember how he ran rawhide cord through the vanquished hero's heels? He attaches him to his chariot and rides around the tomb built for Patroclus, dragging the body of Hector behind. He does this again and again, day after day, for 11 days, thoughtless about the war, about his troops, about anything. Yet Hector's body, protected by the gods, does not suffer damage. It remains pristine, no matter how Achilles mistreats it. And the gods, by now, have had enough. They send Thetis, the mother of Achilles, to reason with him. She tells him that Zeus is over it. It is time to surrender the body of Hector for ransom. Achilles acquiesces. Meanwhile, Iris finds the remaining sons of Priam gathered about their grieving father. He, Priam, is covered in filth, having abased himself in grieving his lost Hector. 
Iris tells him to go with Ransom to the Greek camp, and he goes, though not without resistance from his wife and sons. The latter, he scolds for being lesser men. The best sons have already died, he says. Those that remain are hollow men, mere dancers. And so Priam, riding in his chariot, bringing along a single additional wagon laden with treasure, goes out through the gates and on to the Greek camp on the shore. Guided by Hermes, he comes before Achilles and begs the great warrior to remember his own father and to have mercy on an old man seeking only the body of his fallen son. Achilles is struck with pity and sits the man down, but even this piteous moment cannot remove all the murderous anger from Achilles, and once during their conversation, Priam tests the patience of Achilles, who grumbles that even now, knowing the will of Zeus, he might slay the old man where he stands if he does not watch his tongue. Nevertheless, Priam and Achilles sup together, and a a bed is prepared for the older man. Achilles agrees to suspend the war for another 11 days so that a proper funeral might be held for Hector. Once Priam returns to the city, a massive funeral pyre is prepared. Family and townspeople mourn Hector, and even Helen makes a final appearance, openly expressing regret at having come to Troy. After they bury the burnt bones of Hector, the Iliad ends with this line. So they performed the funeral rites of Hector, tamer of horses. The battle is over, but we still have some matters to discuss. There is much more to digest in the actual pages of the Iliad itself. Some matters, for the sake of brevity and for the continuity of the narrative, I have passed over quickly or without mention. However, if we want to hear and see this epic through the eyes and ears of the ancient Greeks, we should at least try to understand why so much emphasis is given to things that might seem extraneous or pointless to modern people. One thing that I only briefly mentioned in this, in this episode was the frequent appearances of the gods. <clears throat> For the modern reader of the Iliad, I feel like these passages interrupt and slow down the narrative. Also, I have intended this podcast to be as history-driven as possible and to avoid extreme digressions into religious and cultural matters. However, these passages which mention the gods are highly important for the text and for Greek history, since the Iliad, as I will get into more later, was embraced as a divine document, much like the Bible or the Quran are seen today by many people around the world. Living as we do in an increasingly non-religious culture, these portions of the text may come off as wastes of our time or seem less integral to the story. We tend to focus on the human drama, particularly the combat scenes and the dialogues behind the walls of both city and rampart. But these passages, these lines that relate the thoughts and actions of the gods, which are interspersed throughout the books of the Iliad, are actually at the heart of the story. In fact, the first time that we see Zeus holding court in the Hall of the Gods is in Book 1, right after the human drama between Achilles and Agamemnon takes place below. The divine drama is just as much a part of the narrative for the original, for the original listeners of this tale. Yet when we moderns read the story or adapt it into a film, let's say, we tend to focus almost exclusively on the human interactions, as if the gods were just some spurious fairy tales that have no impact on the actions of the war. Some productions almost eliminate the roles of the deities entirely, which really leaves you with just half the story. Now, there is widespread agreement among scholars that the Greeks considered the works of Homer to be inspired. That is, that the ancient Greeks looked at these stories the same way that most Christians see the Bible, as an inerrant document which tells the truth about the past and about the world around us. The Iliad is like the Torah for Jews or the Gospel for Christians. 
Once you see it that way, one begins to comprehend the Iliad differently. Now the frequent appearances of the gods and the numerous sacrificial acts of the warriors make much more sense. This is a religious text. Not only does it tell a religious story, but it contains step-by-step instructions for carrying out sacrifices. All the gory detail about splitting open animal, animals, slitting their throats, wrapping bones in fat and meat, it might as well be a ritual manual, a guidebook. And it probably was. And here we find as well most of the traditional gods of Olympus mentioned and described. Zeus, Hera, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Hephaestus, Poseidon, Ares, Hades, and Aphrodite, and so on, as well as many of the lesser gods and titans. Reference is made more than once to Cronus as well. He is called crooked-minded Cronus, thus expressing the classic Greek idea of the wickedness of this former supreme deity. Zeus is frequently called Zeus, son of Cronus. So much of what you might find in a textbook presentation about Greek mythology, the names of the gods, the domains over which they ruled, and their general inclinations, all of that is found right there in the Iliad, just spread throughout the poem. And as it turns out, the words from the Iliad and from the Odyssey were recited in religious observations and used as incantations, much in the same way that Christian liturgical services use specific quotations from the Bible. I plan on getting into this idea more in coming episodes, the way in which the ancient Greeks and others, later living in the Greco-Roman world, utilized the works of Homer as mystical texts in order to sanctify and to bless. Now let me conclude this episode with a couple issues that may be of particular interest to the modern mind. First, modern readers of the Iliad may be uncomfortable, as people like to say now, with the presentation of women in the Iliad. It should be obvious almost right away that human women in the world of Homer are little more than possessions. Indeed, the two women at the heart of the opening dispute, the daughter of the priest in Book 1 and the girl that Agamemnon takes away from Achilles, each of these women is named in the text. The daughter of the priest is named Chryseis, but that just means daughter of Chryses, the priest. And Achilles' girl, taken from his camp by Agamemnon's emissaries, is named Briseis, which just means daughter of a man named Briseis. Other women do have more defined individual characters, but they are often not very positive presentations. Helen, for example, is quite beautiful, and this beauty is noted more than once, but she is also fickle-minded and shallow. In the Odyssey, when we see her again at Menelaus' side, Menelaus dismisses her contributions to a conversation thoughtlessly before she is forgotten one last time by the narrative. Otherwise, human women in the Iliad are seen at best as prizes, things to be awarded or exchanged between the warriors of either side. They are valuable only if they are pretty or if they are skilled at the loom or some other handicraft. Note that Agamemnon initially intends to take Chryseis back home to Mycenae, to his kingdom. But Agamemnon is not unmarried. No, he has a wife named Clytemnestra waiting for him back home, and he already has children through her. But there are no sexual constraints on the Greek warriors of this period, as will be seen centuries later. In the wonderful play by Aeschylus titled Agamemnon, this Greek king does indeed bring back another woman from the war for his sexual pleasure, much to his wife Clytemnestra's dismay. More on that when we come to that play later. Even the goddesses of the Iliad are portrayed with less than becoming characters. Aphrodite, of course, is always portrayed as little more than a loose, unpredictable woman. 
and even Hera is frequently depicted as a nag, and Zeus calls her a bitch. Her cleverest action in the book amounts to nothing more than tricking Zeus into making love to her and then falling asleep so that Poseidon may intervene unnoticed in the war. There is one glaring exception to this depiction of female energy in the Iliad. Athena is always portrayed as both wise and fierce. She never undermines a man devoted to her, always seeks to help him or to encourage him to greater performance, and is capable of standing up even to Ares on the field of battle. The meaning of this, of Athena's radically distinct depiction, is a great topic for discussion, but probably doesn't have a place in this episode. But let there be no doubt, women were definitely seen as inferior to a great degree when compared to men in Greek culture. I mentioned in an earlier podcast that the Greeks, while they considered themselves more culturally advanced than the Romans, were confused, to put it mildly, by the comparative freedom and status that Roman women possessed, the higher regard with which they were generally portrayed. Now, with regard to men in the Iliad, there is then the matter of Achilles and Patroclus. Any modern discussion of these two usually and predictably veers straight toward their alleged homosexuality, and this characterization is not simply a modern phenomenon. Classical Greek sources, those coming from the period between, let's say, 600 and 300 BC, also tend to assume a sexual relationship between the two warriors, and so do later sources. It is considered a matter of fact in most modern discussions. However, if one looks at the text of the Iliad itself, there is absolutely no reason to believe this. There is no mention made of any erotic relationship between the two warriors, and both Achilles and Patroclus have their own women with whom they sleep. And Achilles is quite distraught, obviously, over the loss of Briseis, the woman that Agamemnon takes away from him. None of which means that Achilles and Patroclus might not have had some sort of sexual relationship, but neither is any, any reason to believe so based on the actual text of the Iliad. Perhaps some people, when they see how badly Achilles grieves for Patroclus, assume that their attachment must have been romantic. But this is perhaps testimony more to the way that male friendships have changed in the West, or rather how they have evaporated, to the point that any time that men have a close relationship, it is jokingly called a bromance, and people try to undermine the integrity of such friendships by making sexual jokes about it. When we come to the series on contemporary times, the last series in this podcast, perhaps 10 years from now, if I ever finish this endeavor of mine, this personal sojourn outside the walls of Troy, I hope to find space and time to discuss the way that modern social changes have impacted Western culture and how the relations not only between the sexes, but within each sex, have also been altered, for better or worse. In particular, I would want to discuss how men have lost access or opportunity, perhaps, to establish deep relationships with other men, perhaps out of fear of public misunderstanding. But now is not the time. <clears throat> I think it's best to simply point out that the interpretation of the relationship between Patroclus and Achilles as homosexual is more likely the result of the cultural lens of the classical period of Greece, during which time homosexual relationships, especially pederasty, had become ingrained parts of the contemporary culture. Still, it is a great topic for the conversation, and I hope you are spurred to think about the matter for yourself, discuss it with friends, come to your own conclusions. Feel free to visit the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org and leave a comment there on the matter. In the meantime, let us leave the battlefields of Troy and, like the heroes that survived the war, continue the journey home. The next episode in this series will be about the Odyssey, another epic poem by Homer in which one of Athena's favorite mortals struggles to return to the home he left behind in order to support the Atreides' efforts to retrieve beautiful Helen and the Spartan treasure.
While you wait for that episode, you might pick up the Iliad, for the first time or not, and let Homer himself tell you the story of that conflict, now forever remembered outside the walls of Troy. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.